I'll have what she's having. I love relationships. I love romantic comedies. I love love. We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. Yes, they freaking got it. Really earn that happily ever after at the end. Change the writing. It's not that hard. Hello, fellow hopeful romantics, and welcome to What She's Having, presented by Meet Cute. Where a glass of rosé isn't required, but it's certainly encouraged. I'm your host, Ashley Eskew, and with Mother's Day coming up, I thought I'd bring on someone that feels like family the minute you meet her. Rachel Winter is, you know, not really a big deal. She's just the Academy Award-nominated producer of the film Dallas Buyers Club, which earned, you know, three Academy Awards and six nominations, including Best Picture. She has an incredible resume as a producer. Crystal, directed by William H. Macy, the indie drama Stealing Cars, Brooklyn Rules, The Lather Effect, the gone-too-soon dream of a Lizzie McGuire reboot, which we definitely discuss. But she's also a director. In fact, the day we had the this conversation, her first film as a director, The Space Between, was released and it will come out on video on demand on June 15th. In this interview, we talk a lot about a guy named Terry. Just so you guys know, that's her husband, Terrence Winter, who, you know, wrote this little show called Boardwalk Empire and was the executive producer on The Sopranos and an Oscar-nominated writer of The Wolf of Wall Street. They're pretty much the definition of power couple, but more than that, Rachel and also Terry, but right now I'm talking about Rachel, are the definition of good people. And I feel so lucky that I get to share the heart and the knowledge and the presence of one of the most wonderful humans there is, Rachel Winter. And start video. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> oh my gosh, where are you? In the new house. I can't believe it. Me neither. <laughs> You did it. You built a house from the ground up. Remind me to never do it again. Ever, 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 ever. Deal. And you know, it's a crazy day. My movie came, is, is out today. Which one? The Space Between. What? Amazing. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Oh my God. I totally forgot to tell you because I mean, it's just been so crazy. But yeah, it's coming. Paramount is releasing it, Oh, which is crazy town. Are you so excited about that? I'm kind of a nervous wreck, but I'm actually more excited because I realized like Paramount is distributing the movie, which is unbelievable in this day and age. Holy guacamole. Oh my God. I'm more calm now because Paramount just reminded me that the reviews will be much closer to June. So I can stop like gnawing off my own arm and nervousness, you know? So I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> That's the hard part, right? Getting it in the theaters and out there. Other than that, who cares? You made a movie. You directed a movie. And you're in it. <laughs> and, and I'm in it. But what's more exciting to me is that I got to watch you direct that movie. Yeah, you were there on day one when I almost fainted. And Michael Royf had to bring me some orange juice because I was like, um, I'm going to faint. I need you to bring me some orange juice right now. <laughs> 
No one could tell. I'm so glad because I don't think that uh, shot one, day one, that's a big vote of confidence for the crew <laughs> that the director is about to faint from nervousness. So. I'm so excited and I'm so proud of you and I'm so grateful Yay. you would do this with me. Yay. I'm still shocked people want to talk to me. Uh, you know what? I feel the same way every day. That's, that's what being a woman is, where we can't believe our value and our worth. <laughs> yeah. Where does that imposter syndrome come from? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I don't know. I'd love to start out by kind of just asking you, what were the first steps you took to build your career in the entertainment industry? Oh my goodness. Okay. So that's always a fun question. When I was getting ready to graduate from UC Santa Barbara, I felt a pull to do something in the film business. So the long story is that I went to the head of the film department, who was Paul Lazarus at the time, very, very renowned guy. I had not been a film student. I don't know what possessed me, but I knocked on his door on campus and I said, hi, my name is Rachel. I have an opportunity to have an internship at a production company in Los Angeles. Would you give me four units and a grade? And he said, sure, I just need the name and the number of the producer. Obviously, this is back before, you know, you just Google somebody or email them. And so I was like, okay, fantastic. And I rode my bike back to my apartment and I called my mom and I said, do we know anyone in the film business? So I completely lied. I don't know why. And her answer was even better, which was, yes, we know so-and-so, but he does pornography. And I said, I don't care. Give me his number. I'm calling him. And so I called up so-and-so and I said, hi, it's Rachel. Do you remember me from the North Valley Jewish Community Center? <laughs> and he's like, Rachie, of course I remember you. How are you? And next thing I know, I am interning two days a week. I would go back and forth between LA and Santa Barbara at a soft core porn company. And that's how I got my start. I did development, you know, on scripts. Believe it or not, there are scripts. There's a formula for softcore porn, two teases and a sex scene for every 30 minutes of programming. This was the only break I could get and I took it. So you got college credit for working in softcore porn. Yeah, baby. Back then there was HBO After Dark and Skinamax and there were just these things and the Red Shoe Diaries and people are working and actors are acting and people are wrangling cable and I did it. <laughs> and I eventually went into a more uh, typical version of production. And then I met my first mentor, Steve Nicolaitis, who is an incredible line producer, Boys in the Hood, Misery, A Few Good Men, John Singleton's movies and Rob Reiner's movies. And just he gave me my very first lesson about filmmaking, which is a producer should be a cheerleader. They should be the first to arrive, the last to leave. And everybody's looking to you for reassurance and you need to be there for them. And then from there, I transitioned to development where I came to know my second mentor, Carrie Brokaw. Uh, drugstore Cowboy, The Player, Shortcuts, Wit, Angels in America. So like my second mentor taught me so much about, or I think, informing my taste and material. I was with him for four years and I think I, I learned a lot there. I feel like producers kind of this job where people are like, I know what it is, but I couldn't tell you what it is. 
in my experience, some producers would give you the same answer, but what does being a producer mean to you? That is the longstanding, long-running question always. What does a producer do and what does it mean? And I would say the blessing and the curse is that, and especially today, it means anything you want it to be. It's such a literal meaning. It means what it sounds like. You are creating something, producing something, something's actually going to come out of your work. You're not necessarily gonna get paid for it. It could take you 20 years, (laughs) but nonetheless, it's just the work. And in film or a narrative theatrical two-hour traditional movie, a producer is the person primarily leading the charge in television. It's all about the executive producer, which of course can refer to a writer and a showrunner, but it really is kind of just a, by definition, blood, sweat, tears, cheerleading, can be financial. It really means a ton of different things. It sounds so much like a mom when you describe it that way. Yeah, that's really, that's really a perceptive concept right there. (laughs) I didn't think about that. So yes, I, I do. And you know what, you really, when you get a movie going or make it, you know, you really are giving birth. Well, is there anything on your slate that you're excited to give birth to now or that you've been working on? Oh my gosh. Well, I would say that, um, you know, I've been working on the LeBron James movie. It's taken like 13 years or whatever year I'm on, which is testament to the fact that there are no more slam dunks. One would think it wouldn't take 13 years to get a movie about LeBron James going. Um, But yeah, so, you know, it's been in development for a long time at Universal, but we are finally getting to the point where we need to be and we're supposed to shoot in the fall, which is super exciting. I love this movie just as much today as I did when I first read the article about LeBron and his four best friends growing up in Akron, Ohio. I read the article in Vanity Fair in 2009 and my husband, Terry was like, you know, if you're reading an article about it in Vanity Fair, someone else is already making this movie. <laughs> like, I don't care. I'm going to figure this out. There's a quality to his story that is very stand by me-esque, but it really is just a story about friendship. And so of course we think of LeBron as a superstar, you know, basketball player, obviously. And LeBron has grown into the face and voice for social justice. He's totally put his money where his mouth is, you know, the I Promise School in Ohio. And he kind of defines grace in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, I really just love his story about friendship and loyalty uh, in that sort of against all odds setting, which was his real life. How did you make it happen? If Terry's like, it's in Vanity Fair, someone's already going for it. What magic did you weave? Well, um, I, I wouldn't say it was magic. I would say it's more about the endurance and sort of like, the willingness to humiliate yourself uh, year after year, <laughs> like just not giving up. So by the time I put the wheels in motion to track down LeBron and his partner Maverick, someone else had gotten a hold of the rights, you know, a pretty big producer named Bob Title. So I had to wait and wait and wait. And I was sort of like waiting to pounce if it ever became available again. So I got lucky, it became available. And Terry helped me because at the time, uh, LeBron was a really big fan of Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> so I was oh. like, honey, you have to get on the phone with me. <laughs> you know? So, I, you know, you got to be willing to whore out your friends and family when they're called upon. Um, Absolutely. So, 
<laughs> I, but I, I knew what the movie could be. And so, you know, we just were diligent about stating our case. And I think they very quickly figured out, I don't give a fuck about basketball. Uh, who cares? It was the story. It was these characters. I mean, I, I think at one point I called Maverick Carter and I was like, hey, can we, you know, talk about the movie? He's like, yeah, I'm walking into a championship game. And I was like, oops, sorry. I mean, I literally didn't know anything about basketball. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really, really excited and I really love it. Oh, I can't wait. Our focus is rom-coms here. So we were all very devastated to hear about Lizzie McGuire not moving forward, the reboot. I'm so curious, what was it about Lizzie's story that made you want to work on it when it was a go? You know, anything that would smack of like a sex in the city for any age group, mm. <laughs> which I'm sure there's a whole limit about what that age group should be. Probably lower and lower over time. God help us. Terry Minsky, who had created the original show, She'd actually not been part of the show. She had just written the pilot and then she actually took another show that was already going. But they went to her to write the reboot pilot and I thought she did a great job. So again, I was too old for the original Lizzie and Simone, my daughter, is too young. So I, I it was just going off of the material. I love the folks at Disney. I connected with Terry Minsky, the, the writer and the creator. We had a really great meeting. I connected with Hilary Duff. She was fantastic. What an amazing work ethic and talent, incredibly hard worker and a mom and a wife. And just, she's so dynamic. So I was kind of blown away by Hillary. She seems to be killing it right now. She's kind of killing it. Yeah. I just, yeah. just watched the first episode of the last season of Younger. I'm super excited. <laughs> I just started that too. Oh my God. I love the show. Love it. Sutton Foster's the one celebrity that I've met that I left and I cried. Oh. Like <laughs> there is something amazing. about her that is like the penultimate celebrity in my head oh. for whatever reason. I think it's my love of Broadway. Yeah. I mean, and, and she's so lovely. So I'm so happy for all of them. And so, yeah, we just kind of, I just hit it off with the group. And I was like, yeah, I would love to help out on this show. So it was much more um, organic and less of my usual, oh my God, I'm obsessed with Lizzie or whatever. That it really came from just more of a, an excited professional place where I like this pilot. I like these people. Clearly this means so much to so many people. So that's how that came about. And I was super flattered to be uh, offered the job. It was really my childhood when Lizzie was really popular. And I remember having an animated kind of entity as a young girl's inner voice, mm -hmm. as opposed to just seeing the outside, I'm trying to be pretty, or I'm trying to be funny, or I'm trying to make cheerleader, but hear the inner voice and how it stumbled. Absolutely. And then the outer rocking butterfly clips was just the perfect dynamic. <laughs> I know, absolutely. And you know, it's funny, you, you're hitting the nail on the head for what was so exciting for people was to bring back that animated Lizzie because I think that was very meaningful and felt very fresh at that time. And you know, it's interesting. I think Terry, my husband, brilliant writer, best writer in Hollywood, um, but he does a great job of the R-rated version of that with voiceover where the creativity to not just do a voiceover that matches what you're seeing on camera. 
that the be best version of voiceover rather is when you're seeing something completely different on the screen as opposed to what you're hearing, which either makes your narrator or whoever's voice unreliable, just adds elements of surprise. So it just, it kind of always reminded me of that. You and Terry were nominated for an Oscar. You were called the Oscars power couple <laughs> by Vanity Fair in 2013. That's quite a title. <laughs> Still makes me laugh. I love that it makes you laugh. <laughs> so you for Dallas Buyers Club and him for Wolf of Wall Street. How did it feel to be nominated the same year as your husband? Like a fairy tale. I mean, like ridiculous. You can't script it. You can't make that up. If you said to somebody, oh yes, you know what my life's goal is to be nominated the same year as my partner. What? I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's fantastic. Aspect. We were good about uh, celebrating every single minute that we could because it was so surreal and so fantastic and we're so lucky and just so crazy grateful. It was insane. It was insane and I loved every minute of it and I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> what is it about you two that allows you to enjoy that moment? Because I'm not gonna lie, I think a part of me, there might be like an inner voice, not my best part that would have some jealousy or, oh, I have to share my moment with my partner. I share everything else with them. What about your two relationship made it able to be the fairy tale and this exciting thing for you both? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think part of it is that we both came from nowhere, nothing, and both share a similar struggle to get where we've gotten. Well, we have a lot of respect for each other. So that's the other thing mm. is like, He's crazy, brilliant, talented. It's harder to measure, I think, what a producer does. I'm a hard worker, so he thinks I'm very talented, which is terrific. I think that makes it a lot easier to truly be celebrating something great that's happening for someone that you love. And then the other thing, just practically, it made it easier to feel less guilt about having to like run out for hair and makeup and leave my kids behind. And I was like, well, daddy's doing it too. So, <laughs> um, although he doesn't have hair. So it was a little, he, he spent less time in hair and makeup, but yeah, it, all of it together just lent itself to being ridiculously awesome. <laughs> I always think about how McConaughey was in both films. Did you guys at least get a thank you note from him? <laughs> Well, Matthew, Matthew's an original, so he does things his own way. But the funniest thing was, so Wolf of Wall Street was shot before, right before Matthew did his short stint on Wolf and then went from New York right to New Orleans where we were getting ready to shoot Dallas. And so obviously everybody knows Matthew had lost probably four, 30 to 40 pounds by then, 50 by the time he got we started shooting our movie and Terry was on set the day that Marty Martin Scorsese saw Matthew and was like, Oh my God, what the hell happened to Matthew? Have you seen Matthew? And Terry's like, look at the time. Like didn't want to say, Oh yeah, he lost all that weight for Rachel's movie. <laughs> like he didn't want anything to do with it. So it was so hilarious. The irony of that, was not lost on us for sure. Oh, and it got it got weirder. So we're finishing Dallas Buyers Club and one of the 79 investors on the movie, you know, they come visit the set or whatever. 
And so one of them's there with one of the other main investors. And he introduces himself and he says, hi, I'm Mark Hanna. I'm one of the investors. And I was like, are you joking? And he's like, no. I said, Mark Hanna is the name of the Wall Street guy that Matthew McConaughey just played in The Wolf of Wall Street. So on my movie, one of the investors had the same name as Matthew's character from Wolf of Wall Street. Wait, was was it him or was it just coincidence? I don't know. Is there any such thing at that level? It was very strange. Oh, I love that that was so meant to be. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was so excited when Matthew mentioned you in Green Lights. Like, oh. honestly, I, I was listening to it on Audible and I like paused and I was like, yes, because <laughs> he tells that whole harrowing story of Dallas Buyers Club and how it was made on that non-existent shoestring budget. What about the story made you want to attach? Why did you spend 20 years of your life making that film happen? Okay, so first things first, very, very important. I have to bring up Robbie Brenner, who is the, the true mother of the movie and her experience was over a 20 year period. She and Craig Borden, one of the two writers with Melissa Wallach, they knew each other from like film school or right after film school. I don't even know, it predated me by years and years and years. They set it up with Universal, but they had six years with like different actors, directors, writers, all this stuff. But Robbie was always a part of it. She's the true mother. I just got lucky. She brought me in because she was heading up uh, relativity at the time and she couldn't do the everyday day today, but it's her baby. I just got lucky and was on the best six years of the ride because that was the six years in which it got made. So I just want to, that's really, really important. She bestowed a great gift on me and she did know it wasn't really an accident. She knew that my uncle had been on AZT, had died of AIDS, that the store, I'd always loved the story. I always saw so much in the script and she knew that I, it meant a lot to me. So I, again, I just got really lucky but bittersweetly a personal connection. Well, I, I don't know how to transition from that into this, but <laughs> I am so curious about your and Terry's personal meet cute story. Well, it's very Hollywood. I guess an all roads lead back to Robbie Brenner because she was working at Miramax in the late end of the 90s going into the 2000s and she called me and she said you got to read this script nailed right in it's great script we're not going to make it you should make it so I read this thing and it was a um vaguely mobby New York kind of a mini Saturday night fever you know crossing the, the literal and figurative bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan themes that we can all relate to and I was like oh my God, this is so good, but oh, this is going to be so hard. But I guess back then I also knew that, oh, well, you know, if a script and words and characters get into your soul, you got to, you got to go, you got to do it. You got to try to, to do it. So I got the company I was working for at the time to option it and in walked the writer, Terrence Winter, <laughs> who was having a lot of success. I guess it was probably in season three of The Sopranos, maybe at that time, you know, a, an Emmy winning writer. Oh, I didn't realize Brooklyn Rules was during Sopranos. Oh yeah. That took four years to get into production, seven years to come out in theaters. What a journey. But I got, you know, a, an amazing husband and two kids out of it. So I'm not sorry. 
yeah i imagine that's every young writer's dream i meet this beautiful producer that's obsessed <laughs> with my work and then over the years we build a relationship and then you end up at the oscars together exactly i mean who doesn't this happen to but he's so cute he like always says like you had me at you loved my script. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think any writer's like, I'm already in love with you if you love my writing. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I can't take uh, too much more credit than that. Well, I'm sure you can. <laughs> you guys have two amazing children that are just about to become teenagers. Oh, and you're excited about that. Have you started watching rom-coms with either of them? Yes. So I have started to introduce the world of Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner to Simone. Oh. Max is 14 as of tomorrow. Simone is 13 in October. So I'm treading lightly with Max. However, I recently showed both of them Jerry Maguire. And while not the classic rom-com, it is one of the best sort of romantic dramedies um, and a near perfect film in, in my opinion. Max loved it. Simone loved it. Terry and I showed them The Breakfast Club. Also not a traditional romantic comedy, but so much of my influences come from John Hughes and Cameron Crowe. That was my foundation. Growing up, so I was, a, I don't know, 15 years old or something when Breakfast Club came out in theaters. I went with my friends. I could not get up out of my seat when the movie was over. I couldn't, I couldn't move. And I was so in love with Judd Nelson. And, and same with Cameron Crowe, who had written Say Anything, you know, and then John Hughes having done some kind of wonderful and, and of course, 16 Candles, you know, so if you're of a certain age, John Hughes and Cameron Crowe are the foundation in a lot of ways. So Simone has now seen Sleepless in Seattle, Notting Hill. I just, I had to buy French Kiss because you can't, for some reason, there must be a licensing issue. I can't, what? I swear to God, you can't find it anywhere. I really have been kind of devoted to showing them some of these movies that are more foundational. Oh, I recently showed her Hitch, which is a, even a more modern romantic comedy with Will Smith and Ava Mendez and, you know, Kevin James. So fantastic. It really holds up, you know, and then even more comedies like we show, Terry and I showed them the original Coming to America. And while that movie, by the way, completely holds up, you know, we were watching it because Coming to sequel. Sequel yeah. was coming out. There's a sweetness to that movie about not settling, um, mm. which is also at the heart of a lot of the rom-coms. So I'm, I'm doing my job as a rom-com lover, passing it to the next generation. As you're re-watching them with her and Max, what are you noticing versus what they're noticing? What are they pointing out versus what you're saying? You know, that's a great question. I feel like I'm still sitting there thinking to myself, this is why I loved it then. I still love it today. I'm probably sitting there thinking like, why God, why can't I get my hands on a romantic comedy script? So I'm probably looking at things as a filmmaker. You know, that's the beauty of rewatching movies is that after you've had your heart ripped out and you've had a good cry, sometimes you then just could be like, oh my God, I never realized how funny that line was. I'm also 
relishing the sound of their laughter. Simone has a physical reaction to this stuff where she like, it's in her body. She has to get up and sometimes she has to hide behind the back of the couch <laughs> to, and like peek oh. over. It is the cutest thing ever. It's really sweet. Or just relishing the fact that Max's ADHD hasn't taken a hold and he hasn't drifted off somewhere. <laughs> that's a huge, that's a huge plug for any film. Do you have a favorite that holds up over all of these years? Pretty Woman and American President and Jerry Maguire. I will just watch them over and over with commercials, whatever. But then again, I'll also do that with like Sweet Home Alabama. It's not the same caliber of film, but the deliciousness is really the same. The the warmth. Yeah, what is the deliciousness? They're great characters, Jerry Maguire and Dorothy Boyd. Uh, so Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, they share where I'm at isn't enough. I deserve more, I want more, I wanna give more, and I wanna be more. Julie Roberts and Richard Gere, I mean, that's the classic Cinderella paradigm. That's the classic fairy tale turned on its ear. You know, she says at the end of the movie, you know, and, and I, she rescues him right back. You know, a hooker with a heart of gold, but ultimately, <laughs> you know, a prostitute who has the same level or amount of insight as the you know hedge fund guy from Wall Street. I will say this goes back to your other question about watching something now, something like an American president, which is I'm all in on anything Sorkin because I want to live on planet Sorkin. I just yeah. I, I want those politicians and I want those people to to walk beside me and speak that language because you know it's a fantasy, but I love that fantasy. But watching an American president today with your child after the four years that we've been through, it was so prescient. It was so ahead of its time. It's insane. I highly recommend going back to watch how unbelievably finger on the pulse Sorkin was about where we, I guess, always have been where we are and where we're headed. Um, and what hopefully doesn't always have to be a fantasy politically. And so it was part fairy tale on the political level. What do you think we could do as storytellers to revive that golden era of the rom-com while addressing its social and racial blind spots? I think there are some amazing storytellers out there who are getting more and more of an opportunity to be heard. I think we as a film community have to do whatever we can to lift up those voices who have a different experience and bring those stories that will ultimately feel fresher, bring those forward. My job as a producer has always been to, and now, you know, whatever, knock on wood, hopefully once again as a director, the job is always to be entertaining. And the best way to do that is to connect with material and not give up until you've made it and let audiences decide if they connect with it. You've experienced love from a lot of angles. Mother, daughter, you've been divorced, you've, you're in a marriage right now. How has your point of view on love evolved? I don't, I... I... It's so perfect. great. It's just so great. That's how my point of view has evolved too. Just yeah. <laughs> falling to the floor. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. Um, all of my own psychological baggage and damage has never gotten in the way of me being able to love easily. So, and I'm definitely like a naturally emo emotional and emotive person. I've 
never had a hard time experiencing emotion or sharing. I don't have to work at it. And so I'm not sure there's been much of an evolution. So maybe the evolution has just been more as a storyteller, learning how to share the love, spread the love. Uh, that's kind of the best answer I have for you. No, I, I love that. Are there any little breadcrumbs you've discovered throughout your life that you think have given you that gift where love has always been so accessible for you? You know, it's funny. It's not always been great because there are like right now, like I could tear up and just embarrass myself by crying. My son Max has inherited that. And like, you can see him trying to control it because it can be embarrassing. <laughs> but in terms of those, like the, if I traced my way back, like as you say, a breadcrumb, I have good parents. I have an inspiring dad who very moral, given his professional life, you know, as a public defender to juveniles and, uh, and now sits on the bench in juvenile court, just because he believed he never chose to try and make more money. Like as my mom would say, a real lawyer. And I've always had access to the movie version of myself. What do you mean by that? Well, I've always seen myself in a scene sort of what does this look like from an outside perspective? You know, the movie version of my dad is very Aaron Brockovich-y. I guess I've been easily inspired since being a young person. So you have some of the best personal style of anyone I have ever met in my life. I think that is inarguable. <laughs> I, and now that I know you love Pretty Woman, I'm so curious, what would your Rodeo Drive Pretty Woman shopping montage look like? <sighs> <laughs> well, they just don't have any vintage stores on Rodeo Drive. So right. I might have to switch the streets, but I, I, I so know what you're saying. And there's something about being on Rodeo Drive or Madison Avenue. And, you know, she comes out of that montage and she's so refined and she's got that hat and the gloves. And by the way, it took me a very long time to appreciate the style of the 80s. Sans shoulder pads. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Um, does not go with my, the, the, my bone structure in any way, shape, or form. But um, I appreciate that concept. So even with the, vint, um, you know, obsessed with vintage, I've also started to drift toward that more refined quality, like it would be silly for me to don a hat and some gloves, but like, please somebody invite me to a polo match. I will do it. I will do it. So, you know, Rodeo Drive, I suppose on some level, like, you know, if I won the lottery or something, I'd probably go and buy a ridiculously expensive bag or, or a pair of beautiful pants or something that would that quality or something would last so long. And I'd give them to Simone and be like, no, no, you have to treasure these. I live in fear. You know, you're very sweet to point out my personal style, but it's pretty specific. I live in fear that when I'm dead and gone, that, you know, all my shit's going to be out in a garage sale because the kids are going to be like, what the hell is all this crap? But I, I feel like I need to label everything when I, as I get older, like, oh God. Are you kidding? You taught me you can wear Converse with a dress and make it work. <laughs> like that is a lesson I carry daily. <laughs> well, and it's so much better for your feet. So, so true. <laughs> We have some audience questions. Eros in West Hollywood would like to know, what is your biggest piece of advice for a female in the industry? 
Oh my gosh. Um, that's a great question and a really important one. And my answer is the best advice I can give is to, and it's going to sound kind of goofy, but be authentic because I think women already have something unique and special to bring to the table. I think the day of us needing to compete like men, think like men, be like men. I think that's, nobody's interested in that anymore. Anything that smacks of something phony, I don't think is going to go as far as something authentic. And I think people are really needing it. I think they're really wanting it. And so I do think in today's world, a woman of any age should try to connect with the thing that is so true to who we are and specifically in the film business to figure out how that authenticity translates into storytelling. This is why my opinion is um, important. This is why my opinion is unique. I have something to say and this is why. And the, the other thing I will say is don't be afraid to show the flaws. I think that the shit gets boring when everything is so perfect, which is the heart and soul of a romantic comedy. We wouldn't have romantic comedies if we didn't show the flaws, the things that that make us, you know, our scars and our baggage. So I, I think that all speaks to an authentic point, but I have found that my most successful moments in work not necessarily life, but in work, when I have said, look, I'm telling you, I, I've had this experience. This is how it shaped me. This is how, and this is how it's informing this creative decision right now. Rebecca in Riverside said, I hear that you've been directing. What is your next project? Which now I know this is the perfect question. <laughs> so yes, I did direct my first feature a couple of years ago and yay, it um, is actually out Today in theaters, it's been released by Paramount. It's called The Space Between. I fell in love with Will Aldis's script. I wrote it for the first time in 2002. So coming up on 20 years ago, and it took a really wow. long time to get made. Here's the other thing is, I was trying to produce it for 16 years, 17 years, and I finally woke up and said, to hell with this. All these different directors have not have bowed out or we couldn't get the cast with them. I know this thing backwards and forwards. I totally believe in it. I want to sit in a dark theater and see the smoothie. I'm doing it. Homages to John Hughes and Cameron Crowe abound. And it's Kelsey Grammer, as you've never seen him before, a incredible Paris Jackson, Jackson White, Julia Goldani Tellis, who's phenomenal, William Fickner, just great, great, great cast. So... Yay. Um, and then I guess the question was, what is my next project as a director? Well, I am desperately trying to get um, a new job. I have been sort of auditioning for a new movie that I really believe in. It is a true story and it's actually set in the trans community, but I'm, I'm really trying. Jordan from Albuquerque would like to know, what is the biggest contribution to a film you have made and not gotten credit for? Wow. Well, gosh. Okay. I, I will say that if you want credit for anything you do in film, probably don't be a producer. 
I would say producing is a kind of a thankless job generally. So you kind of have to do it for the love of it. And, and, and so Dallas Buyers Club was, um, I definitely got, I got so much out of the experience, even though, as you know, Ashley, how, how harrowing it was. It, I learned so much. And I will say that, you know, I, I haven't gotten sort of public credit for it, but Jean-Marc Vallée, who uh, directed the movie and is beyond brilliant. I don't even think I understood his level of brilliance <laughs> until I was uh, working with him and in awe of him and in post. But he let me contribute in post in a pretty significant way. He let me push the film creatively to be more emotional. I think why the film was so successful is because he didn't go for a treacly version of the movie. He didn't go for the traditional version of, a, of an AIDS movie. He didn't go to these places. However, some of us kind of wanted to cry a little bit. Some of us wanted to have our hearts ripped out just a schmidge. And I was able to work with him in the editing room. He has given me that credit personally. And that has meant everything to me because the guy's just a genius. But his openness and allowing actual suggestions, not just, you can't give a note that is, just make me cry, which by the way, we did get from an executive or, or two from the studio. They're no longer at the studio. And these are amazing, iconic people in the film business. Some of the, one of, one was one of the fathers of independent film. He was like, I just need to cry. I just want to cry. That's not a note. That's, that's not a note. And so one of my most exciting moments in my career was being able to literally and and specifically come up with a plan that only Jean-Marc as the amazing filmmaker and editor he's an incredible editor to do some stuff that had to do with the end of the film have him take those notes and and again I you know I heard him tell Matthew McConaughey about that and that felt really really good would anybody know that like no but it doesn't matter because it was a real contribution to the film that made a lot of difference to me personally and I think to other people. So that's that's what I got. Well, you've made it to the lightning <laughs> Here we go. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at keeping secrets? Eight and a half. Wow, well done. In one word, describe what a person needs to be happy. Love of self. Would you rather give a present or get a present? Give a present. Ask permission or beg forgiveness? I wish my answer was ask forgiveness, but it's would beg for forgiveness. But my the real answer, if I'm being honest, is I do ask for permission. And finally, what is the greatest act of love you have ever witnessed? When my son asks me how my day was. Well, happy birthday to Max tomorrow. Thank you so much, Rachel, for doing this and being here this was so fun <laughs> oh i'm so grateful to you always i am crossing my fingers for everything coming out i can't wait to see the space between yes and ashley's in it as <laughs> stephanie <laughs> thanks to rachel thank you so much for everything thank you thank you this was so much fun 
Does it get any better than Rachel Winter? It doesn't. A reminder to check out Rachel's directorial debut, it's certainly not her last, The Space Between, available on video on demand on June 15th. Today, Rachel and I talked about Lizzie McGuire, Younger, An American President, Jerry Maguire, Pretty Woman, Notting Hill, The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, Dallas Buyers Club, Brooklyn Rules, that's the movie around her and Terry's meet cute. Starring Freddie Prince Jr., one of our favorite rom-com leading men. And in honor of Rachel's partnership with LeBron James and Maverick Carter, check out Big Shot on Meet Cute, available wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're checking out Big Shot, make sure to come over to what she's having. Rate, review, subscribe, leave a message. We want to hear from you. DM us on Instagram at Meet Cute or on Twitter at Listen Meet Cute. Just on a personal note, something I didn't get to talk about with Rachel is that she is the biggest mentor and connector of women I have ever met. She is such an advocate, honestly, regardless of gender, of everyone she meets. And she exemplifies every day how to put good into the world. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing that good with us. I guess that's it. I'll see you next week, but until then, I'm Ashley Eskew, and... I'll have what she's having.